Lily, you may think that as a freelancer, a job site would not be for you. Yeah, but I've just been having a look on Cision Jobs. And actually on that website, you can search for freelance and part-time opportunities. And you can also select for homeworking. Oh yeah, the search lets you look within PR or journalism jobs and then by sector, salary, job title and hours. Yeah, there's loads on there. So go and have a look. It's scissionjobs.co.uk. and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. I'm Lily Cantor and I'm Emma Wilkinson. In this series of the podcast we've been talking to journalists who've moved into writing books. Yes it's our summer read special in which we're going to delve into the process and practicalities of writing a range of different types of book. So if you've ever wanted to know more about how to move into writing books as a journalist or how to get a book deal or perhaps how to concentrate on a piece of work for that long a time, then you're definitely in the right place. Today, we are absolutely delighted to be speaking to Terry White on the topic of writing a memoir. As I'm sure you all know, Terry is a journalist, editor and author who, until she went freelance last year, was editor of Empire magazine and before that, Time Out New York and Shortlist. The reason Terry is here with us today is to talk about writing her enormously personal and powerful memoir, Coming Undone, Moving between her violent and abusive childhood and period of living in New York, she paints a vivid portrait of how someone can be simultaneously thriving professionally, but completely unraveling personally. We both absolutely loved the book, which first came out in 2020, but we also wanted to pick Terry's brains about choosing to go freelance for better work-life balance and her views on class diversity, or lack of, in journalism today. So hi, Terry. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, so perhaps we could just sort of go back and start about um, how the book actually came about. And one thing that we were kind of both wondering was, um, because this is obviously, you know, a difficult period in your life you had to process, did the book come about just because you were writing to put something down or was a book always in mind? No, definitely not in mind, really. When um. As you said, it's split between my childhood and the period I was living and working in New York, you know, a couple, well, three decades later. And part of that experience was I was uh, sectioned in a psychiatric ward. And when I came out of the psychiatric ward, I was in AA, so I wasn't drinking. Um, Obviously, editing time out, um, New York was pretty much, it was all dinners and drinks and parties and going out. And... I couldn't do any of that and I didn't want to do any of that. And a friend said to me, look, why don't you start writing these 50 word stories? Um, No, sorry, 500 word stories, 50 word stories. No, it was, no, I go back again. It was 50, it was 50 word stories and they were like little vignettes. And I just started writing them about different things that happened um, in the psych ward. And I just continued to write them. And then I started to write about the experiences of my childhood, which had has always kind of been in my brain, but I'd never really committed to paper. And it was kind of demanding to be written, which sounds incredibly pretentious, but that's the only way I could put it. It was kind of every time I sat down to write, it was this stuff that was coming out. 
And then basically I did nothing with it. I moved back home, got the job at Empire and I was taken out for lunch by a friend's wife who had worked in publicity at Faber for 20 years. She was starting her own agency and she was looking actually specifically for somebody funny to write about sex and dating. So she said, oh, have you ever thought about writing a book? What about sex and dating? And I went, don't have sex or dating, but I do have horrible violence and uh, a psychiatric ward. And I told her kind of what happened in New York, which at that point I really hadn't told anybody. I was very worried about it coming out. I was really concerned about how it would impact upon my career and my reputation as a journalist and, and more specifically as a magazine editor. I worried that nobody would trust me. Um, you know, these even very recently, mental health was not talked about within journalism or within publishing. And it certainly wasn't the sense that you could be open about it. So um, so I just said to her, this is actually something I've that's happened to me. I've thought about maybe writing something. And obviously she was really excited by it. And what happened is I, I originally wanted to do more of a a study of class. So class is something I'm, I'm kind of very engaged with and it's something I personally feel very passionate about coming from a working class background. And I was going to write a book about other women. So I started interviewing these women for this book about class and there was going to be, you know, chapters on education, on violence, just all of the things that kind of working class people have to contend with. And I sent it off to her. She sent it to a couple of publishers she knew. And I was in conversation with them about this book and then I, they asked for more. And instead I sent them what turned out to be Coming Undone, which was my memoir. And I, I think that's really frowned upon is to get somebody um, kind of into one idea and then go, don't wanna do that anymore, here have this. And we kind of didn't go wide with it. We just spoke to two publishers who we were already in conversation with. One of those was Canning Gate. They really loved the material and they offered me a deal and and that was that really it's it's really interesting to hear about that evolution because I think sometimes when um journalists might think about writing a book they assume that the idea has to be fully formed at the start and you you know that can't change over time and um, I mean I read the book again recently and one of the things it's just it's so visceral the feelings that it generates your style of writing was it hard to write the book that you ended up writing did it kind of force you to perhaps remember things that you'd that you'd forgotten yeah I mean and, and it's really interesting because I I was published essentially I was 40 by the time it came out <clears throat> and I had this big beam up on it I'd always wanted to be a magazine editor by the time I was 30 and I was made editor of shortlist at 29 and I wanted to write a book before I was 40 and the way it, you know, it takes ages, by the way, that's the other thing. If you work in journalism, you're used to doing something and then it appears in books, it takes ages. So I'm, I think I was 38, maybe a bit younger when I started having conversations, maybe 36, 37. By the time it was going to be published, I'd have just turned 40 and I was like livid about this because I, I felt like I'd like missed my goal. But that kind of writing you're talking about, which is what I would call now very much my style of writing. I still hadn't found that, definitely not in my twenties and really not in my thirties. Like I look back on some of the stuff I, I wrote before 
and it just wasn't there. I don't think I had the confidence. I hadn't found my rhythm yet. And so that rhythm um, was kind of evolving while I was writing the book. So I, I wrote, I remember I wrote this piece. I, I called off um, a wedding. I was meant to get married. I called off a wedding two weeks before. And I wrote this piece about it, which was probably one of the first proper personal pieces I'd ever written. I, it wasn't commissioned for anybody. I just wrote it um, to kind of get it out of me. And I found this rhythm that I'd never managed to find before. And that actually was the thing that gave me the confidence to write the book. And the whole book is kind of like that. And so weirdly, I couldn't have ever done it at any other time other than the time I did it. Or I could have done it and it wouldn't have been as good, quite honestly. But when it came to those details you're talking about, which are really raw and, you know, really terrible memories that if you are a a survivor of any kind of childhood or, you know, adult abuse, actually, whether it's physical or sexual, and in, in my case, it was both, you spend a lot of time repressing those memories and trying to live in a way that doesn't allow them to consume you and to dominate your daily life. And you spend years doing that. And then when it comes time to write a book, my my sense was that the deal I had with the page and with the reader was complete and total honesty. And so I didn't want to hold anything back. And so kind of unearthing those specific memories or fragments of memories, because a lot of it was when I was age four, five, six, accessing those, unearthing them, trying to see the shape of them, the texture of them, that was incredibly painful and incredibly difficult. And I think people who may expect a process of catharsis, it, it doesn't always happen. It, it happened for me in the end around publication. I actually felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulder. But during the writing of it, there were moments where it felt like torture and I had to kind of segment my time. So I'd go, right, I'm going to write for an hour and I'm going to write some really hardcore stuff and then I'm going to go to the pub with my boyfriend or I'm going to go to the pictures and take steps away from it because you do go to some really dark places. If your quest is to uncover truth, both in what happened and the consequences of that, then you have to be prepared to go through some pain. Um, and for my mind, it's worth it for an honest account, but it is, it is something that I think people have to really consider if they're gonna write a memoir similar or dealing in similar themes. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you talk about kind of bringing in sort of snapshots of memories and something that came across to me in the book was um, that it was quite fluid um, mm. and you were, that you know, there's gaps in the kind of chronological order um, and you, you're kind of perhaps skipping between different parts of your life. Was that kind of an intentional style that you wanted to to create yeah and a, a few people I think were disappointed that there wasn't more New York in there as in the New York glamour I think the kind of sex and the city part of it me on rooftops with cocktails which happened um but I didn't see that as relevant and I think for me a powerful memoir is not just the story of your life it is a story about your life and the story I wanted to tell was how did this woman end up in a psychiatric ward in New York while holding this big 
amazing, seemingly glamorous job. And to do that, I wanted to trace a very specific line back to what happened to me as a child. And that's the story I wanted to tell. And anything that didn't serve the narrative shouldn't be in there. So I don't think there's like one episode from my 20s where I first attempt suicide that, you know, apart from that, there's none of my kind of rise, my career, there's there's, uh, no university in there. And some people who wanted a more traditional memoir, I think missed those elements, but it was a very deliberate narrative choice, which is, for me, it was about saying, when girls, young girls are violated in this way and brutalized in this way, this is the consequence. And this can be the consequence. And how do we break this? And and just having a good job and a good career and living in an amazing city isn't enough. If your sense of self has fundamentally been stunted or snapped at the age of five, how do you become a woman 30 years later? That was the only thing I was interested in exploring. And then when it came to kind of the fragmentation of memory and experience, I wanted it to be an accurate representation of how we experience memory, how we experience flashbacks. You know, they're not a complete narrative picture and nor should they be. And if they are, you're filling in those gaps yourself. So I wanted to, as much as possible, relay to the reader what I saw and felt and remembered in the way that I saw, felt and remembered it, if that makes sense, so that I wasn't filling the gaps or the holes but trying to show that part of the problem with these memories and with these flashbacks is that they're uh, discombobulating and disorientating and that they're incomplete and they kind of, you know, they stop unexpectedly and they come in at weird times and all of those things, all of those things that we experience, trying to make sure I represent them properly on the page. Yeah, I mean, kind of related to that structure. I mean, I, I th- maybe this is why I liked it so much because I, I I don't like memoirs where it's like this happened and then this happened yeah. and then, you know, and it's all kind of by and between 1980 and 1990, I did this. Yeah. Oh, it's so boring. But also the book doesn't have that narrative arc that you might expect. It doesn't have that kind of redemption or happy ending that some sort of memoirs in that kind of genre might have. It it just sort of ends when you leave New York. And um, can you talk us a bit about your sort of thinking about that? Yeah, it's funny because um again this was I think challenging for some people. Like I I was very adamant and weirdly I'm not sure if I would be today, but but then I was very, very adamant that I really hate as somebody who's experienced that stuff that the dominant narratives you see in media, in film, in TV is um, this awful thing happened. I got really messed up. And then, you know, I met a man and had a baby and got a dog and bought a house. And now look at me, I'm happy ever after. I hate it because A, like there are so many victims and survivors who don't get that happy ending. And B, what is a happy ending anyway? Life just continues on, right? There's not any one day where you're suddenly fixed or it's all solved. And I remember when I was, you know, still having depressive episodes or I'd be suicidal, feeling like I had to kind of strive for this ending that everybody else had. And it makes you feel like even more of a failure for still finding those 
things insurmountable sometimes. And again, I just wanted it to be real. And so I was really adamant that I wasn't going to do the three acts narrative with, as you say, the redemptive, redemptive arc at the end. And absolutely fair play to my publisher, Canongate, because they completely got it, completely saw why I wouldn't be comfortable doing that. And when I, when I first started writing it, I was single. I met somebody while I was, um, must have been when I was finishing the book. Yeah, I remember, I think we had our second date when I signed the contract. And then by the time we were doing final edits, I was pregnant with my son. And I was terrified they were going to say, oh, great, can you add on a chapter? And they didn't. And, you know, a lot of other more traditional publishers, I think, would have insisted on that. When I wrote, well, when The Guardian, they ran, um, they ran a big extract from the book, but they asked me to put a paragraph on the end saying, you know, I'm now a mom and I've got a baby. Um, because people want that satisfaction of that resolution. And actually, um, I won't say it in case you haven't read the book, but it ends, it ends at a point where normally it would kick off the third act. And um, that's where I chose to end it. And I don't know, I've been thinking about it a lot recently because I was really adamant that I was that I wanted to do it. I knew it would probably piss some people off because they they wanted that as a reader. Um, and recently I've been thinking about it because I know it split people. And I don't know, I, I think I was a bit, I don't know if I was a bit bolder then or I'm a bit more pragmatic. <laughs> now I do have a child and a, a quite a lot of rent to pay and a nursery bill that I can't quite afford, but I was... I was absolutely like set on it. And I'm glad, in, I think I'm glad in retrospect that I chose to do that. Um, because again, I just thought anything else would be a misrepresentation. I just think there's so much out there that makes you feel like you're doing it wrong. Like you're not recovering in the right way that you're not dealing with the trauma in the right way. I didn't want to add to that thing of, of also being that. And I'm very resistant to the sense that, you know, having a baby and finding a boyfriend sorted me out because what actually happened was I sorted myself out. And then because I was no longer kind of a, a you know, deeply unwell person, I met somebody and that relationship managed to thrive. And then we had a kid, but obviously people, I think people like the sense of, of somebody like me being rescued um, still, still in this day and age. And it sounds like your publisher really trusted you, um, you know, allowing you to tell the story in the way that you did. And the other thing that strikes me is that some of the content um, is, is particularly graphic. I remember reading the chapter about self-harm mm. and just thinking, oh my God, like, can you throw any more at this? It was mm. really harrowing to read. Um, I mean, what were those conversations like with the publisher when you were sending that kind of content through? Was there any pushback at all? Do you know what? There was, there was absolutely none. Um, and again, that, that is all credit to the publisher. And, and it, again, it's been an area of debate. Um, somebody said I was glamorizing self-harm by showing it in such great detail. But again, the, the thing is, we have a real problem in, in some parts of, of literature, I think about palatability. So it's, it's what is nice to show. I think responsibility is one thing, by the way. And I, I 
defy anyone to read the bits on self-harm and, and think that's a good thing to go and do. I, sh I show how brutal it is. I think responsibility is to be taken seriously, but I do think that I also have a responsibility to not worry about what is respectable and what is nice and what is palatable for people to be able to stomach. If you don't want to stomach it, don't read it. Like that's absolutely fine. But to understand why a woman like me would be sat in a studio apartment in the West Village in New York, self-harming with chef's knives, I had to describe what I was doing and why I was doing it. And because what we often do is we cut away, we'll go to the scene of somebody about to hurt themselves or, you know, um, or be abused. I, I use the same kind of rule for the abuse scenes as I did for the self-harm scenes, which is to show the unflinching reality because, you know, this is all the stuff that happened to me and I live with the detail of it. And that's what memory is made of. Memory is made of the smell and the feel and, you know, exactly what your mind and body experience. And people sometimes don't want that. They want a distanced kind of a quite cold description or better still, no description at all. They want the camera to cut away at that moment. And there's lots of, of places, you know, there's lots of books and films and stuff where that happens and that's fine. But for me, there was no way to tell the story generically. And it had to be the detail of why I'd done this and why these brutalizations led to these actions by me. And I was very comfortable with it. And the publishers were amazing because it, some of the stuff I submitted first was the more graphic stuff. Um, but I don't owe it to anyone to cut away at those, at those scenes. I've always thought what I owe people is the reality and the truth because empathy, empathy for survivors and victims of sexual abuse and physical abuse is born out of empathy of understanding their perspective. It's all too easy to go these mad, and I'm using inverted commas, which you can't see because this is a podcast, but you know, these mad girls just self-harming for attention and, and getting drunk and taking pills because they're irresponsible. No, they have a level of trauma, of self-hate, of like, you can't even begin to comprehend and they have to live with that every day of their lives and you know the the bleakness of it I really felt had to be portrayed to understand why I still felt like this and had this amazing job people couldn't marry those two things which is how can you have this life that in some respects is so envied but at the same time be completely falling apart and that's that's how and that's what it looked like I get I get the sense that you were very careful, I think, not to tell other people's stories in Coming and Done. So your siblings are mentioned like really sort of briefly and yeah. there's a couple of friends in in there um, with some of the uh, the kind of stories that you tell, but not in masses of detail. So what, what kind of decisions did you did you make around that? Did you write anything and think, oh, no, actually, I, I shouldn't include that? So I, I did make a rule. You're right. So. Um, I would only include a story or a memory if it was essentially about me, because I think it's really unfair as a, as a writer and as an author, you have an incredible amount of power and you have an incredible amount of responsibility and to not abuse that power or responsibility. So I didn't, you know, there were some stories, for example, 
some behavior by my mom that I, I could have put in there to somehow generate more sympathy for me but it was ultimately about it would would have just been about showing my mom in a bad light I didn't see any editorial justification for doing that so yeah I, every story had to be about me and I couldn't tell other people's stories so my siblings you know have their own stories and their own lives and their own perspectives I'm sure my mom has her own perspective um, and it's not my place to tell their stories or to invade their privacy. Um, it's fine when it's me because I can make that decision. But and so there was never a version with kind of, you know, more fleshed out people. Um, and, you know, that distance, I'll often call somebody the man or somebody like that. I was trying again to reinforce this sense of yourself splitting and fracturing and me being kind of at a distance from the world and people within it um but yeah it it and that's something I stand by which is you know a, a good memoir can powerfully tell your story without needing to tell everybody else's and how did you feel when the book actually finally was published because you are being so open and honest I mean what did that feel like to have that out there in the public domain I remember I did really do you know what I didn't really kind of think it was happening for ages and it takes so long to do a book. And so I kept kind of, I'd have these 3 a.m. panics where I'd be like, oh God, it's going to come out. Everyone's going to know everything. Because um, you've got to remember most people or pretty much everybody knew knew that I'd, I'd grown up on a council estate and that things had been quite rough. And we, you know, my mum was a single mum, those kind of things, but nobody knew about the abuse obviously nobody knew that I'd been sectioned in New York that I'd previously attempted suicide none of those things were known and so it was kind of a big reveal all at once and I was particularly worried about work because I was obviously the editor of Empire at this point and I thought that they would no longer trust me what would the people who work for me think um and the day it was announced, I knew that there was going to be a press release to the bookseller that included kind of basic facts about most of that stuff. We were at an awards, I think, some kind of Bauer Awards at Alexandra Palace. And I was just leaving when it, it popped up on my phone that it had been published. And I remember having like cold fear thinking, I mean, nobody cared, but oh my God, everybody in this room now knows all these things about me. I felt very exposed at first. And then I knew The Guardian was running this big extract, um, which contained, you know, a, a scene of the abuse uh, and some other details that I was worried about. And I was so nervous before it came out on the Saturday. And then kind of like I referenced earlier, it was weird because then when it actually was published, I just felt like a bit of a weight had been lifted off my shoulders because in some respects, I wasn't living a lie, but I was definitely not being a whole person to most people. I was keeping things very deliberately withheld. And there was kind of a liberation in it in the end. And all of those things I'd been paranoid about, they all just kind of disappeared. And, and to be fair, people were so generous and so kind about it. And people, I think, had a bit more understanding and everybody was incredibly empathetic. And yeah, and it was it was 
by and large a really lovely response and that really really helped and as to the best of my knowledge it didn't harm my career in the way that I thought it might yeah I mean one thing I suppose you were sort of quite obviously an established uh, respected journalist at this point I mean Lily and I both teach um journalism students as well and I I sometimes worry that they're often very keen to write about themselves and their personal stories and it's not that they don't have really interesting fascinating stories to tell but I have concerns that they might later change their minds they might feel there's too much information out there about themselves do you Mm. have kind of any Mm. advice for those who are perhaps just starting out on that I mean I would and it's bizarre that I'd say this but I if possible I would avoid um, while you are finding your feet and establishing your reputation as a journalist, I would by and large avoid personal essays. And, you know, there's that big boom in them. I think it's slightly receded now. But there's two things, really, I think. One of which is I feel like it's represented as a way in for female journalists specifically. This is a way to get your name known. Um, and often people may feel that they are, you know, selling their trauma or that they have to have something on a plate to give them. They have to carve out a bit of their own flesh to be able to be commissioned. There's something about the dynamic of that situation that makes me really uncomfortable. You'll, you know, there's a reason personal essays are predominantly written by young women and not young men. I think journalism is such a skill and such a craft and all of the work I did in in my god the first 15 years of my career was all other people's stories and that's what journalism is journalism is reporting and crafting narratives about other people telling other people's stories and I think that's I'm so pleased that I focused on that and I very I wrote one piece for Grazia about um growing up on benefits I remember which was more a polemic about about the way we treat families that have to survive on benefits in this country. But apart from that, I I really stayed away from doing personal journalism. And I'm glad that by the time I decided to do some bits, and I'm still very careful about what I write about, um, I've been asked by certain places to write things that I'm not comfortable with, and I've said no to a lot of those. And don't feel that that's your only option is all I'd say. Don't feel like you have to sell a part of yourself. You can be a journalist and not write about your own life if that's what you want to do. And don't let anybody make you feel that that's your only way in because it absolutely isn't. And I was in my 30s before I started doing any of that writing. And so I felt like I was in a really good place to be able to measure what I wanted to contribute and and what I didn't want to contribute. So I think when you're at the very start of your career, if if possible, it would not be my first kind of um, route in for sure. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really sound advice. Um, One thing we were keen to kind of find out really is is obviously you've got this memoir out there now um and it and it does kind of finish not kind of incomplete I guess I mean have you got any plans for another memoir um because I believe aren't you writing a novel now as well yeah so so I was like toying with something um about motherhood I just don't know if the world needs another book 
about motherhood um and I don't know if I've got anything new to say about it um but I'm keeping kind of diaries and notes of a sort but I'm right yeah I'm writing a novel at the moment but I'm also adapting Coming Undone for television um so I'm I'm working on the scripts for that at the moment and what's interesting is obviously television is such a different medium to memoir so part of the challenge with um with the scripts is building out those worlds that I didn't build out in the books because TV, you know, is, is such a different, people want certain things. And also the story has to be much more complete than it is in the book. So it's been kind of amazing to dig back into that time and that world in a different way um, and write about stuff and remember stuff that I didn't engage with for the book. Um, so, but yeah, the, the novel is kind of, I say it's not similar, but I, I'm very, you know, engaged in misogyny and feminism and class and all of the, all of those uh, quite heavy topics. Um, the abuse of kids, like violence against women in certain communities, like all of this stuff um, fascinates me because of, of so much what happened in my early life but also work I've done since with refuge and with NSPCC um so I think all of all of the work kind of has this common thread really um which is trying to give voice to to so many women who don't necessarily have one and that was what I wanted to do with the memoir I think my um dedication is in the front is to my nana but also to all the girls who fear they're forever lost so one of the things I used to hear most often growing up was that I was nothing that I was nobody that I was never going to be anything um and that was because of class because of the prevailing attitudes of the men in my life um the lack of power the lack of self I had, the lack of freedom um, and kind of correcting those things as I've got older has been really important. We can't have you on the podcast, Terry, without asking you about your decision last year to go freelance. Um, it, it essentially, I understand this was kind of around the just your job at Empire and the long days you were having to do and how that balanced with uh, sort of motherhood, seeing your son, yeah and um, you know Lily and I've both got children we know from our Facebook group that the you know so many of our community uh, freelancing mm. for journalists are female can you can you tell us about taking that step and how you feel your work-life balance is now yeah so it was you know it was a probably the biggest decision of my life today and it was not one I reached easily I, I tried to find a solution to the issues um but you know I'd kind of just been clinging on by my fingertips for a while actually and it was an all-encompassing job and it was you know for the first however long I was there for the first maybe four years but then I had a baby and it became it really things became an issue when I was pregnant because I was still working with ridiculously long hours um, you know, often LA wakes up just as you're clocking off here. So at five and six o'clock, the calls and the emails would start again. It's also a bit of a seven day culture in, in film studios. 
but also we simply didn't have enough staff so I was doing things that a lot of editor-in-chiefs don't have to do and that I I didn't have to do elsewhere so it was just I knew it was unsustainable when I was pregnant and I had like a bit of a tricky pregnancy I had gestational diabetes um I was on insulin and you know I was older I was 40 41 40 so it, it was difficult when I was pregnant and then when I had my son I can just remember thinking I don't know how this is going to work I don't know how this is going to work and I tried um lots and lots and lots of things but it was quite clear that I was either going to have to keep working ridiculous hours and you know the, the week I ended up quitting I did was it two or three 19 hour days that week um or I was going to have to considerably reshape what we did i.e in my mind we were going to have to do less thorough less excellent work to be able to make the hours more livable and the other half of it was I couldn't in good conscience you know keep asking that much of the team either like we we were so under-resourced and understaffed that it it was evident throughout the team and and as a manager you know, I felt like I'd, I'd made it work and I'd made it work and I'd made it work and that kind of had made it okay. Um, and I just hit a wall and was like, I can't, I can't do this. And I could, you know, I'd get home and my son would be asleep and I'd just like stand and watch him sleep like those bad dads in movies who miss the baseball game. Um, so, and I, you know, I, that was kind of my dream job and I loved it and I loved everything about it, but I just had to make a pretty difficult decision I wasn't willing to sacrifice seeing my son basically was where it got to and yeah and I just I just leapt really and it was it was incredibly um incredibly painful decision to make I, I found it quite brutal in the end your life just changes overnight um we'd moved to Manchester to be closer to family and yes, I've been freelance ever since. And still I have a column in the Sunday Times. Um, I still I write features, usually celebrity interviews at the moment, actually, and then do some opinion columns. And then outside of that, I'm I'm making a documentary and I'm writing the scripts for the screenplay. And what's actually kind of been great is being able to diversify into those other areas um because I think everybody listening to this will be well aware of the difficulties around um uh, how much freelance journalists are paid and don't even get me started on like actually trying to get the money out of people but the I mean the rates of pay obviously I'd been on staff for years and I always felt bad that at Empire we could only pay 35p a word and then kind of you get out there in the world and people are offering you know somebody offered me 7p a word and obviously I said no but you I it was a real reality check for me what how low the freelance rates are pretty much across the board it's been very sobering to see that yeah yeah but it sounds like you've got fingers in lots of different pies mm. and, and you've recently launched a newsletter as well yes so um substack i i wanted to still write about tv and film and i was doing some reviews for empire i wrote a cover feature for sight and sound 
Um, I interviewed Rick and Plough for The Guardian. Like I was still doing bits and bobs, but um, there was, I wanted to say stuff. I wanted to say stuff all the time. So basically, um, I had an irregular column for the big issue uh, where I, I talked about film and TV, but I wanted a more focused place to be able to do it. Um, and knew some people who'd launched Substacks and the, the pay was better than traditional journalism because they built up an engaged audience. So I just thought, oh, I'll give it a go. And so I've been doing that for the last month, just over a month, um, which is great. You know, I've, I interviewed James, um, James Graham, the creator and writer of Sherwood, when that went crazy the other week. Um, I did Russell T Davis for an editorial series I'm doing. So it's been, it's been really great to kind of have that freedom and autonomy and to start building your own audience really, who you engage with directly. And I obviously still speak to a lot of the readers of Empire, people used to listen to the pilot podcast that I appeared on. Um, so that's that's been great and I'm still kind of feeling my way but so far I mean the aid I have to say substack pay really promptly um, but b it's just it's a really kind of simple and intuitive platform and hopefully it'll just continue to grow um, and I want to launch podcasts and do events and loads of other stuff um, all the stuff really that I love doing at Empire and Pilot and and stopped once I left yeah it's nice isn't it to have freedom and to try new things I mean I think your answer to this my next question is gonna come back to pay and can people just pay freelancers on time for the work that they've done please um but you wrote recently for New Statesman for about a topic that we also feel really strongly about and that's the need for more working class journalists in the industry so yeah what needs to happen for that to improve and also what can we do as freelancers to support a more diverse in lots of ways yeah workforce in journalism yeah I mean journalism's got so many problems and I, I specifically look at it from a class perspective because of my background I mean the piece I wrote for the New Statesman was in response to I was fascinated by how um, Mick Lynch was treated by journalists and I was thinking how different would this be if there were if he was being interviewed by working class journalist after working class journalist and then I did some reading about the data and it said there's two percent of journalists come from families I think with the two kind of lowest socioeconomic professional backgrounds and I was in that two percent and it's like I knew it was bad I didn't know it was two percent bad and what is it, 80% were privately school educated? Like the statistics are, I mean, even like if you look at comparable professions, journalism stands out head and shoulders as being the absolute worst. And it probably isn't a surprise to anyone who's been in a newsroom or has been in a magazine. And I think it's really, really difficult because you've essentially only got a couple of routes in so free internships are still happening you know companies I work for when the minimum wage came in interns if they were doing work with which let's be frank proper internships don't really exist in our industry what happens is they end up doing real work because all, everybody's understaffed right so you do a free internship for as long as is humanly possible. When the minimum wage came in, most companies um, flipped their policies. So they would only take people who had 
to do work experience as part of a course or were of school age. So they're the two exemptions from needing to pay them. So, um, and then the only people who can afford to do them, A, if you're on a course that demands work experience, it's probably a course you have to pay for and it's probably outside a lot of people's reach. If you then can afford to go and do free work experience in London and pay for somewhere to live, or if your parents have a house in London, you're going to be at least middle class. And that's the problem is the only, those internships are now only really open to those people. I did an internship at Marie Claire when I was 19 and it was a nightmare. I stayed in halls in Bethnal Green and I'd never, I'd only been to London once on a school trip. I worked nights um, stacking clothes shops, rails and days in the magazine. And I still, each day I had to choose between traveling on the tube to work or eating and I'd, I'd alternate. Um, and I did that for two months during the summer holiday and then kept in touch with them, went back the year after, after I'd finished my final exams to cover the receptionist. And let me just say this as well, the internship was on reception. I was the work experience for the receptionist. Like I wasn't even on the proper magazine, I was on there for the receptionist. Then I got offered some paid cover because she was going on holiday and I heard of a job going upstairs on later magazine as the PA and the editorial assistant. I went for it and got it. And that's the other route that's been closed down. So when I started in journalism, which was 1999-2000, magazine journalism, the way in was, especially for young women, was through PA and editorial assistant jobs. Everybody I know who got in, got in through those jobs. Those jobs have now disappeared. So you will not find a magazine that has a PA on it. You will not find editors have PA. I certainly didn't have a PA editorial assistant jobs have gone because what's happened to the masthead in magazines is very senior jobs. So these to be editorial directors all over the place. They've all gone. The bottom rung is totally gone. So for example, Empire, the most junior job on Empire was news editor. And you already had to have a couple of years experience to get the news editor job. So everybody ends up in this middle strand. Um, so those entry level jobs by and large don't exist. So if you can't get in that way, you can't afford not to do work experience. You probably haven't gone to university because I was the last year to get a student grant. What do you do? What, how do you get in? I don't, I honestly don't know. There are some one-off good schemes. I know the Guardian do a scheme. Um, I was a lead mentor last year on the LFF, so the London Film Festival, the BFI do a, did a critics mentorship for the length of um, the London Film Festival, and they covered costs and all of that. So that was open and accessible to people. But what we're talking about is an industry that has one-off schemes dotted around at various organizations, Loads of people going for those, like hundreds of people going for those schemes, but no actual consistent, regular way for people to get in on talent and not on nepotism. I don't see how you can get in these days. And I hate saying this because I hate having to acknowledge that without having a solution to it. The solution is not going to happen because those entry-level jobs will not be put back in because magazine journalism especially is having a really difficult time and resources have been stretched to absolute breaking point. What I recommend to people these days is 
to really embrace freelancing and to really try and get make your name yourself outside of a organization and diversify as much as possible so I know brilliant freelancers um, who I commissioned and gave a break to Empire and they do video they do um, broadcasting they do pod they do event hosting they do panels they do, and they essentially have lots and lots and lots of irons in the fire I know getting that first gig and that first, those are the difficult things I personally mentor three um, working class journalists. Um, so I've got three at the moment. I'm just about to move to a new three. But again, these are drops in the ocean, right? Compared to like what we actually need. Somebody like Arts Emergency is doing amazing stuff in the space in terms of trying to get people without contacts, without money connected. But it's a pretty bleak scenario and I can't see the stats getting better anytime soon and I really don't actually believe there's a real will in a lot of places to do it I think people can get worried about being called out or about being like shown to not be giving opportunity equally to everybody but I, I don't sense a real will for there to be change. Sorry, this has gone into me having a bit of a rant, but I fucking, <laughs> it infuriates me because I wouldn't get it. I don't think I'd get in today. I don't think I would yeah. get into magazines. I don't see how I'd do it. I come, well, I agree with you. And I think we agree about freelancing being potentially, so we have our journalism work experience initiative where freelancers will do that mentoring and that kind of remote work experience as well. Um, but I think, sometimes the people that you're working for it's assumed that it doesn't matter if you're not paid for three months or you're doing it as a hobby or you've got this kind of support network underneath you so there, there are still lots of hurdles to to climb on this we're gonna yeah. have to keep shouting about it aren't we and the um, expo- I mean don't get me started on the exploitation of not paying right so we've ended up in the situation where people are selling or gaslighting kids getting into journalism by saying we can't pay you, but this is a great opportunity for you. A, if your business model doesn't involve paying for the copy you are commissioning, you do not have a working business model and you have no place asking people to write for free. B, I know a lot of these places then don't even line edit. So they're not even getting experience because often they just take what's submitted and put it online and that's it. And it's it devalues the, the journalism but and it devalues it for everybody so we end up in a situation where you know people aren't expecting to be paid I would get people writing to me at Empire saying can I write reviews for you don't worry you don't have to pay me and I used to write back and say never never offer like if, if journalism is commissioned it must must be paid for and it's exploitative that's what it is I like if you are good enough to be commissioned you are good enough to be paid it doesn't matter if you have five minutes experience, five years experience, five decades experience. And anybody who gaslights you into saying, this is an amazing opportunity for you, like it's absolute nonsense. Do not feel grateful for a platform that you have earned and you should be rewarded for writing for that platform. It's, it's, it's just the worst. It wouldn't happen. It doesn't happen in any other industry. Honestly, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I think people, whenever we talk about this on social media, people are always really surprised when journalists are saying, you know, we haven't been paid for three months, so we're only offered this. And it, yeah, people always look at you a bit, a bit mad. 
Um, we could talk about this all day, but we are going yeah. to have to bring this episode to a close. Let's, let's try and tie it up with a very yeah. neat bow. And we're going to ask for your top tip on uh, getting published, getting a book published or getting the attention of a publisher in the first place even. So I think it's all about your agent, really. And I didn't, so even though I worked in magazines for ages, I didn't really know how to get a book deal. And my agent, um, Anna Ply, is is just a genius. And what she, it's like you were saying earlier, what she did was took my idea and kind of helped me shape it into something. If you get an agent you trust and who you really like, they will do all the hard stuff for you. They go to the publishers they know the publishers and all of that stuff you know I know a lot of people who try and approach a publisher direct which they which you won't know unless you know that that's not the way to do it that it all has to go through um an agent and then just be prepared for real sacrifice if you have a full-time job and you're writing a book so I was editing empire working really long hours and I basically didn't go out for six to nine months so I'd get up at 6am on a Saturday morning and I'd write um often all night I'd do an all-nighter um I had to be really really disciplined I had to leave my um boyfriend's birthday party early because it was you know there was four hours there I could write you have to be willing to sacrifice everything to make your full-time job and um, the writing work and it's real discipline um, and also if you're a woman write that book before you have a child because let me tell you like the, there is a abundance of time that I didn't realize that I had and I wouldn't have been able today I can't I can't write as quickly as I used to because of very real world pressures so if you are considering I'm not saying life stops when you have a kid by the way I'm just saying your time will be taken from you so if you are thinking about having a kid and you are thinking about writing a book get the book out as quickly as possible I think that ties in really nicely, actually, with our our first episode of the series um, when we spoke to Lisa Bradley because she's got two children and she was she wrote her book basically at the side of football pitches. Yeah, I um, mean, I mean, and that's the other thing, right? I used to be really precious about writing, so I'd be like, I need a glass of good red wine, a cigarette. I need it to be a full moon. I used to like have. <laughs> Of all of these like romantic writerly conditions that had to be met and now I'm on the toilet writing in my in my notes app literally like so yeah yeah the practicality becomes a real a real thing yeah yeah definitely oh well what an excellent place to finish thank you so much Terry for joining us today that's been really fascinating and um there's been some incredible words of wisdom there Yes, don't forget you can find out more about us and all our resources at freelancingforjournalists.com and you can come and join our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community if you've got any questions about freelancing and want to find out from some more experienced journalists. And on social media, we're at Freelancing for, and you can also follow us individually. I'm at Lily Cantor. And I'm at Emma Journo. And we want to say thanks to our research assistant, Helen Quinn, and our producer, Maddie Drury. And that's it for this series, but we'll be back again in the autumn. Goodbye for now. Bye.